The Dance Edit podcast is brought to you by Jackrabbit Dance. Jackrabbit is the industry's most reliable dance studio management software. If you're a studio owner, you know how important class management software is. Jackrabbit is going to make your life so much easier. Their software is cloud-based, powerful, and adaptable. And Jackrabbit has the industry's largest team of trainers, product coaches, and client success specialists to support you in your studio. You wouldn't accept less than the best from your students. Don't accept it from your software either. Visit jackrabbitdance.com and use the promo code DANCEMEDIA, all one word, for a free trial. Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoin. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine. In today's episode, we will be discussing the essential points raised by three Black ballerinas who are calling for change in the ballet world, highlighting the action-oriented activism of Melanie Green and Jay Bowie, the hosts of the Dance Union Podcast, touching on dancer companies long overdue, reckonings with implicit bias in their products, and wishing a happy would-be 111th birthday to the legendary Catherine Dunham. Um, first, we wanted to note, again, as we did last week, that there's just like a fire hose of news, of really important, complicated, not sound biteable news coming at us all right now. We'll inevitably miss some of that in our 15-minute podcast conversations. So, Please reach out to us on Twitter at dance underscore edit and Instagram at the.dance.edit if there are stories or topics you want to hear us address in future episodes. And if you are looking for a way to at least attempt to stay on top of everything going on, please do be sure to sign up for our daily dance news digest at thedanceedit.com as well. Um, so in an effort to stay on top of everything ourselves, we're going to start this episode with a dance headline rundown, just touching on some of the top stories of the past week. So Lydia, will you start us off? Yes. So congratulations to Ronald K. Brown. Jacob's Pillow announced today that he's the recipient of this year's Jacob's Pillow Dance Award. Some good Hooray. news, which is great. Yes. <laughs> Excellent news. <laughs> Much needed. Sorry to bring the party down a bit. Um, so Philadelphia's Kimmel Center is furloughing 80% of its remaining staff and putting pay cuts into place for the remainder in face of major COVID-related losses. Uh, Philodenko, which frequently appears there, has said it's too early to know whether renting the venue this season will be financially feasible, while Pennsylvania Ballet is expected to make decisions about its fall shows in July. And the producer and creators of Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway have donated $100,000 to organizations combating racism in theater. Half of that amount will go toward the Broadway Advocacy Coalition's anti-racism forum called Continuing the Conversation next year. And the rest will be allocated toward the racial justice organization Color of Change. And some more excellent and much-needed news. Uh, five major philanthropic organizations led by the Ford Foundation have pledged to drastically increase spending over the next couple of years in order to shore up nonprofits struggling in the wake of the pandemic. Hopefully that'll be a lifeline for a lot of uh, arts organizations. Potentially game-changing news. Yeah. And Dance USA's annual conference has gone digital this year. It started yesterday and it runs until tomorrow with sessions addressing racism and COVID-19. And one moderator was our very own editor-in-chief of Dance Magazine, Jennifer Stahl. Yay, Jenny. 
Uh, and meanwhile, we're still getting new waves of performance cancellations. Among the most recent, uh, Paris Opera announced that renovations to its theaters, initially planned for 2021, have been moved up to this fall, effectively canceling the ballet's fall season until December performances of La Bayadere. Stateside, Tulsa Ballet has canceled its annual September season opener, Creations in Studio K, is looking to open instead in October. And the Joffrey Ballet has taken more drastic measures. It's canceled all of its planned performances through the end of 2020, including the Nutcracker, which the company says is responsible for more than half of its annual revenue. Uh, This is the first major company Nutcracker cancellation that I've personally gotten wind of. And I hate to say I don't think it's going to be the last. I agree. Completely, unfortunately, agree. It seems like we're only going to be hearing more announcements like these from ballet companies, especially in regards to Nutcracker, since they just depend so heavily on traditional, not pandemic-friendly theater settings. Um, But so now in our second segment, we want to turn to another ballet world issue that is in urgent need of discussion. Um, Last week, we talked about the male ballet dancers who were calling out the racial injustices perpetuated by their own companies. This week, three ballerinas spoke out about the change that needs to happen, both inside ballet companies and in the wider ballet and dance world. Um, Royal Ballet Principal Francesca Hayward talked to Harper's Bazaar about her experiences with casual racism and about how few young people of color have exposure or access to ballet training. Um, Pacific Northwest Ballet's Amanda Morgan talked to our own Lydia Murray about her efforts as an activist and how ballet organizations need more diverse representation at every level, not just in terms of the dancers on stage. Um, and then Gabrielle Salvato of Ballet West wrote a post on Interview and Lair titled Black Faces in White Spaces, in which she talked about moving from New York City to Dance with Ballet West in Utah, where only 1.4% of the population is African-American. That's some culture shock. So starting with Gabrielle Salvato's post for interview on Lair, uh, there were some very troubling accounts. One quote, she said, um, in a racial sensitivity meeting, a coworker expressed that racism against black people was the current fad. <laughs> Yikes to say the very least. Um, And she said that during one of her first encounters with their marketing team, she was referred to as an ethnic and chosen for the project because in quotes, an ethnic would be great to represent the company. So no, a lot to unpack there. Um, And moving on to Francesca Hayward's interview with Harper's Bazaar, she pointed out that a big part of the problem that dancers of color face is not getting the opportunity to train for ballet careers and they're not being guided toward ballet and we need to help them, as she put it, find that door because it's not that the doors aren't open, but ballet training is expensive, it is too often filled with microaggressions and it enforces a rigidly Eurocentric standard of beauty and those factors are serious deterrents to a lot of young dancers of color and the art form suffers because it excludes so many voices and so much fresh interesting talent yeah and i think um in the uk there's definitely the training structure is a little bit different than it is here um so i think there is a lot less opportunity if you're interested in dance to just go out and find a good school um i think that feels much less like a normal thing Whereas here in the United States, there are so many, quote unquote, recreational schools that one can get their start on. Absolutely. That's a whole other thing. 
Yes. And um, and when I interviewed Amanda Morgan from PNB, she addressed this issue of training as well. Uh, at one point, she talked about the need for more black artistic directors and executive directors and choreographers. Um, but during our conversation, and this isn't part of the final interview that's on the website, but she said that there's a lot of talk about getting more black ballet students. Um, and those companies are actually taking those steps, but more needs to be done to get those students into companies, which I thought was an excellent point. And she also mentioned that she herself once felt like she didn't fit in and couldn't succeed at PNB because of her race. So who else feels that way and how do we fix that? And she talked about starting a mentorship program at the PNB school and talking to students about racial issues, which I think is critical because younger people will probably be you know, more flexible in their thinking and open to change than a lot of adults. Um, another kind of interview bonus from our conversation was that she, she asked, what kind of training do you need to be an artistic director? And she pointed out how those positions are often awarded according to someone's previous career in dance and don't necessarily require a background in other areas relevant to the job, like, for example, business. And of course, there are barriers for people of color just to get those careers that lead eventually to being an artistic director. So the system is flawed in that sense as well. Um, personally, I love the idea of networks of uh, dance professionals of color who nurture and guide the next generation, like the, the Memoirs of Blacks in Ballet Symposium and the International Association of Blacks in Dance. Pause to say, Matt, like, this interview is fantastic, Lydia, like, fantastic Thank job you. of this. We will link it in the episode description. Please go read it. Um, so all too often when the dance world's white-led institutions hear these kinds of testimonies, these kinds of calls for action. The response is a lot of talking, endless meetings and conversations, but few measurable actions, few real changes. Um, in our third segment, we want to talk about two dancer activists who are moving beyond talk, um, Melanie Green and Jay Bowie, who were profiled in the New York Times this past week. They certainly know that discussion can be valuable. They host the excellent Dance Union podcast, which is, you know, talking. Um, but in this critical moment, they are emphasizing action over words. Um, the two of them organized the online forum Town Hall for Collective Action, Dismantling White Supremacy Within Dance Institutions, which happened June 1st. And then on Monday, they hosted their second Town Hall, Dismantling White Supremacy Within Dance Organizations, a response. Um, those Town Halls are, in Green's words, opportunities to model the kind of dance world we want, where we actually listen to each other, we create actionable steps of how to move forward, and we implement those steps. Yeah, so highly recommend, if you can, checking out the New York Times interview that uh, Siobhan Burke conducted with the two of them. Uh, one of the things Melanie said was that a lot of the panels that she's attended, there's the beginnings of conversations, and then they run out of time, and they go nowhere, and there's never any actionable steps. So she and Jay, uh, who just for clarity for listeners uses uh, they, them, or we pronouns, uh, put together these town halls to work on figuring out what those actionable steps are and then moving people towards who are the organizations and individuals who are doing this work and how can we support them and how can we make this more collective action moving forward. I, I love that they're addressing the need to actually take measurable action toward improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in dance because, yes, all too, all too often meetings and forums uh, are are organized to discuss these issues and they don't really necessarily yield significant results. And also, 
I appreciated what Jay Bowie said in this interview, which is that um, they experience white supremacy by who we center as knowledgeable in any field of art, thought, and practice. Because for too long, highly influential dancers of color have not consistently been given the same amount of recognition as their white counterparts, which also connects to the point that they made in their piece for Dance Magazine earlier this year about white supremacy in dance curriculums, and that concept applies to dance as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they talked a lot about how we teach a very Eurocentric model in higher ed, and any form that was originated by Black creators is relegated to electives. And making the point that this also carries over oftentimes into how we discuss dance history. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I'm just remembering this. My teacher telling me constantly growing up, ballet is the foundation for everything. It's like, no, no, in, that is only partially true in the Western dance world. <laughs> The things we were taught. Sigh. The things we were taught. Um, if you were not able to tune into or participate in the town halls, you can watch them now on YouTube. Please watch them. We will link those in the episode description. Please also be sure to follow the Dance Union at the Dance Union on Instagram for updates and to donate both to them and to the speakers who gave their time at the town halls. So our next segment illustrates exactly why, when it comes to fighting the dance world's systemic racism, it is critical that we all do take action now, as opposed to just talking around problems. Um, we mentioned in our last episode that a little more than a week ago, so many people signed a petition to get blocked to offer point shoes and darker shades, that ultimately the brand ended up announcing plans to do just that. And since we recorded that episode, five other major dancewear brands have made similar announcements. Russian Point, Capizio, Nicolay, Grishko, and Suffolk are now all doing similar things, some of them prompted by the overwhelming responses to similar petitions. So there it is, action begetting change. But even within the dancewear industry, the fight against implicit bias, not to mention more explicit racism, is far from being over. So as most of us in dance know, um, pink point shoes and tights were designed to blend into the leg and extend its line. But if your skin tone is brown, pink will actually break your line. So in order to correct this, darker skinned dancers have typically used either dye or foundation or sometimes paint to color our point shoes and our tights to match our skin tones. But recently more companies have produced these products in a wider range of shades. So Gainer Minden started offering nude for all shades in 2017 at no additional charge. And its head designer, Eliza Minden, had actually wanted to do this since 1986, and she had consulted with Leslie Woodard of Dance Theatre Farlem, but Minden said that the company couldn't afford to do this sooner. Um, and since then, companies like Freed, who collaborated with Ballet Black in 2018, Russian Point, Nikolai, Grishko, and Suffolk have also begun to offer more inclusive shades. Yeah, and while it's good to hear that progress is being made on the point shoe front. Um, this issue does extend far beyond point shoes. There are issues with tights, with other dance shoes, with nude colored undergarments not being offered in a diverse range of shades. Um, we did want to call out some of the brands that have made inclusivity a priority, especially Black-owned brands. Um, Ballet Cafe Naturals, which offers tights and six flesh tone shades. They're doing great work. Blends Apparel, which produces leotards and tights and ballet and jazz shoes for diverse skin tones. Um, AS Dancewear, owned by a friend of ours, Allison Stroming, which is doing similar things and has made it part of their mission from the beginning to include dancers of color in all of their advertising campaigns as well, just so that visibility is there. Um, I feel like this is our ongoing theme now. We have seen some incremental progress. There is still so much work to be done. Like we're just going to end up saying this at the end of every segment from, from here to eternity, but it's true. 
So finally this week, we are taking a Throwback Thursday. If anybody says Throwback Thursday, do people say Throwback Thursday anymore? I'm so old, you guys. I mean, here's the thing. Maybe they do, but time is fake right now. That is so true. Isn't time always fake? Oh, Lydia, we should not get into one of our philosophical asides. It will go a very long time. <laughs> long time. All right. <laughs> we're going to say it. We are taking a Throwback Thursday walk through dance history. Um, Catherine Dunham, the renowned dancer and choreographer and anthropologist, the founder of the nation's first self-supporting Black modern dance company, she's known as the matriarch of Black dance, she would have turned 111 this coming Monday, June 22nd. She was a dance pioneer who had a long and extraordinary career and life, we were saying before we started recording. How do you encapsulate this life in a a three-minute spiel? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the answer is you really can't. Um, I We do a little column in Dance Magazine called From the Vault, and I wrote one on Catherine for the June issue and was freaking out about how do I summarize this incredible woman in this short amount of space that I have. I can't, so I'll try. Um, I mean, to say that she's one of she has to be one of the most powerful examples of the artist as an intellectual full stop. Um, like to say that contemporary reviews of her performances were glowing feels like this wild understatement and just all that skill and charisma. It saw her dancing in Hollywood and on Broadway, as well as in her own work. Um, you know, she famously appeared in Cabin in the Sky, which she co-choreographed with George Balanchine, no big deal. Um, but I think more importantly, she leveraged that interest in her work into funding for her ethnographic research. Uh, she was an anthropologist by training. Uh, That's what she studied at university. She even got so far as submitting a master's thesis. Um, And she used that funding to travel to the Caribbean, and she was just feverishly documenting the dances she witnessed there and studying how they were a part of life in these cultures um, rather than just entertainment. And she took all of that research and all of that information and all of those observations, just notebook after notebook and film and video and uh, photographs, And then she filtered them through her really brilliant knowledge of craft and theater and composition to create works on her own dancers um, to, as she put it in the May 1947 issue of Dance Magazine, show the people of the United States what others have contributed to our culture. Um, In the same issue, she also said, I'm only interested in dance as an education, as a means of knowing peoples. She also of course, you know, created her own dance technique. Uh, one of her students was this guy named Alvin Ailey. I don't know. Have you guys heard of him? Uh, and she was a noted scholar and she was an author. She was an unflinching proponent of racial equality. Um, she was always very politically active. She actually led a 47-day hunger strike at the age of 82, uh, protesting for the rights of Haitian uh, immigrants in the United States. Um, I mean, this woman did everything. Uh, and among a very, 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 very long list of awards and honorary doctorates, she received a Dance Magazine Award in 1969. A, she was a Kenneth Kennedy Center honoree in 1983 and was awarded the National Medal of Arts in 1989. Um, everyone should know more about Catherine Dunham, I think. Uh, also, if you Google her, there's uh, I think there's like clips from the various Hollywood films that she appeared in over the years. Uh, You can take classes in her technique, uh, which most people these days are familiar with through the Ailey Company. 
Um, and if you want to learn more about her, a good starting point is the Catherine Dunham Centers for Arts and Humanities, which you can visit at kdcah.org. We'll link that in the episode description, too. I feel like anything else that I could add about Catherine Dunham would just be stating the obvious, but still, she's just been such a huge inspiration for my whole, you know, throughout my life um, and throughout my time in the dance world in different capacities. One one issue that I think a lot of dancers still face is the idea that dancers aren't intellectuals or that dance is not an intellectual pursuit. And we have a story about that at Dance Magazine um, that came out some time ago. Um, but I feel that that also applies maybe even more when you're um, a black dancer or a young black dancer or even a young black female dancer um, because we tend to get put in these boxes or we tend to feel this pressure to fit into some sort of mold. Um, You're either, you know, this kind of person or that kind of person. You can't really be, you know, a dancer and Uh, you know, a scholar. And she just kind of blew the lid off of all of these different stereotypes and all of these different limits. She just really lived without limits in a really inspiring way. I mean, I feel like any time if you are listening to this and anyone ever tells you or treats you like you can't be an intellectual because you're a dancer, I think point them to Catherine Dunham and then tell them to come and talk to you. Retweet. (laughs) It's a catchphrase. It is... How did retweet become my catchphrase on this podcast? I do wonder. Well, don't, don't don't try to disown it. Like a, <laughs> grab that and run with it. Um, so before we sign off, just a reminder that tomorrow is Juneteenth. And if you are in or around New York City, um, please consider joining the first annual Juneteenth March, which is being co-hosted by Elisa Monti Dance Artistic Director Tiffany Ray Fisher. She has called on other members of the dance community to march with her, and the International Association of Blacks and Dance and Dance NYC have confirmed that they'll be participating. You can find more information about that via the Facebook event page, which we'll, we'll link to in the episode description. But Ray Fisher also spoke at the Dance Union's town hall this Monday about the importance of civic engagement. Um, even though dance training often teaches us to be silent, mm. that is essential viewing. Um, you might not be able to march, but please watch it. We'll link to that too. So thank you everyone for joining us. Um, We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. As always, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, guys. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.